I like to call myself a pyrogeographer because I'm thinking about fires across space and time rather than just an area that's burned just in that one point in time or that one location. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science, their careers, and their passions. Today, get your marshmallows ready because we're talking about forest fires. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA Committee of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The IDEA Committee is devoted to empowering engineers and scientists from diverse backgrounds to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is by pairing established and emerging geoscientists through their Women Mentoring Women program. In this year-long mentorship, careers blossom and friendships are born across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more and become a member, visit grss-ieee.org slash community slash idea. Around the world, we're seeing the impacts of a changing climate. And one of the things that we're seeing in Canada and northern latitudes in particular is that our fire season is becoming longer because the snow doesn't stay on the ground as long. This is Morgan Crowley. She's a fourth-year PhD candidate at McGill University in the Department of Natural Resources. It's scary to see these changes, I guess. Like, it's less predictable and more variable. And that's equally scary as things increasing over time because we don't know what each fire season's going to be. You know, British Columbia in particular, they had 2017 was the worst fire season on record. And then 2018 was the worst fire season on record. So they hardly have any time to kind of rebound from one bad fire season to the next fire season. As a pyrogeographer and remote sensing scientist, Morgan uses satellite imagery to study the impacts of forest fires in Canada. Through her research, she developed a new technique for mapping forest fires as they burn. You are in your fourth year of PhD and you've been focusing on rapidly mapping forest fires. Can you explain this technique and does it does it address the less predictable and more variable um, issue? So the approach that I um, kind of applied to fire mapping um, uses multi-source satellite imagery um, and it's combined with a Bayesian updating of land cover algorithm that was developed in my lab. And basically what it does is it stacks all the images from that are available for a fire. Um, and weighs the confidence and the evidence for each pixel, whether it burned or not. And so when I applied it, I was really interested in looking at how close in time to a fire burning can we have an image and update our map of the fire growing. Um, And so it it works as a per pixel application of uh, Bayes' theorem. So it weighs basically the probability that something has happened based on how much evidence it's seen in the past of whether it's burned or not in that pixel. It's uh, you know, really long, like 3,000 line code in Google Earth Engine. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we used to run this algorithm in R and it would take three to four days to run it locally on our computers. It's a very costly algorithm because it's literally tracking the probability for unburned and burned in each pixel. So not only do you have, you have for every one image, you end up making basically two in addition to an associated table of probabilities. Um, when we've applied it in Google Earth Engine, it's been we've been able to apply it to much more data uh, or 
you know, much more data sources, much more um, data imagery. And, you know, the primary reason for this approach is to help emergency respondents react to fires as they happen. And so if they can have as many as much information as possible, then they can know where they need to go immediately, you know, put out fires. So often, you know, existing data sets have used one, you know, data source, maybe just MODIS or just Beers or just Landsat. And what we're finding is, you know, when you put them together, you get so much more information, you really highlight the best attributes of each data source. And so that's what the the bulk algorithm allows us to do. So what motivated you to develop this new technique? Yeah, so in my master's, I was doing a lot of qualitative GIS, actually, and some large-scale geospatial and spatial modeling of where folks live in are moving in the inland northwest of the United States. Um, So like Oregon, Washington, Idaho, in relation to where fires are burning. Um, And then also did qualitative interviews with forest landowners to look at how they were managing their forests in response to their wildfire risk. And one thing that kept coming up in that was there's limited data sources at the time. This was, you know, seven years ago now. So it's it's changed drastically in that timeline. But, um, you know, there'd be hand-drawn maps for where the fires were in the county instead of geospatial data sets for where we could view the fires. And um, they're really coarse resolution. They'd be weeks old. And so it was hard to have up-to-date information about fires. Um, so after my master's, I ended up moving back to Canada. I reconnected with one of my former uh, undergrad advisors and started doing some forest monitoring in um, Google Earth Engine um, because I had the ecological and social uh, knowledge of fires and forest disturbances and then also um, had just an intrinsic interest in applying remote sensing in those settings. It developed into this partnership for my PhD with the Canadian Forest Service to use multi-source data, remote sensing data, to map wildfires as they grow. So where does your research fall within the general trajectory of forest fire mapping? Right. Yeah. So this, this data set, this analysis really, you know, has been designed in terms of, or this prototype approach has been designed for those, you know, national forest inventorying, updating maps um, for, for future management, but it's also provides a pipeline for future analyses. So, in 2024, there's going to be um, wildfire sat is being launched from Canada, and that's going to be providing high temporal resolution and high spatial resolution data for all of Canada for fires. Um, and for that, they need pipelines and algorithms that can piece together wildfire sat data with other information from other satellites, um, because you can't really have one source of data that's you know the best that's going to meet everyone's needs. But if you have a pipeline that can piece together these multi-source observations, then that's what helps everyone. It's kind of a different way of thinking than we've done previously, because a lot of times sensors have been designed separately from one another. Um, but kind of this new generation of science and of remote sensing satellites, they, they think about how can these data sources be used together. Coming up, Morgan and I talk about how she's making the geospatial field more inclusive. Plus, Morgan surprises us with a secret. All this right after the break. Worldwide, women remain underrepresented in the STEM workforce. That's why the IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society has developed a highly organized and incredibly rewarding mentorship program for women. 
Through this year-long program, mentors support mentees in setting goals, problem-solving challenges, and celebrating successes. For mentors, it's an opportunity to share expertise with the next generation. And for mentees, it can mean the difference between staying in geoscience or leaving the field. Before entering this program, I feel isolated from the community. Now I feel I can bring the benefit to others. Consider offering your expertise as a mentor or bringing your enthusiasm and questions as a mentee. Visit grss-ieee.org slash community slash idea to sign up. Welcome back. So far, we've learned about the forest fire mapping technique of pyrogeographer and remote sensing scientist Morgan Crowley. As we heard, climate change is altering forest fire seasons in Canada, and scientists like her are responding with new approaches to tracking this progression. But climate change isn't the only change on Morgan's mind these days. As someone who was the only woman PhD in her lab until recently, Changing the climate of geoscience towards a more progressive and inclusive discipline is a key focus for Morgan's work. You said you started as the only woman in your lab. Why do you think women haven't been staying in the remote sensing field? From my experience, at least, in my master's, there are folks who I worked with who really encouraged me to go down a qualitative route because they thought I could provide more advice or more perspective to that area of research rather than kind of venturing into you know, a harder course forestry route of mapping trees and analyzing them um, with an e ecological perspective. Um, so I think it's, there's a lot of biases of people who are in power and that, that, you know, can impact how they mentor students. And it takes mentors who are, you know, encouraging students to pursue what they enjoy rather than what they think they should enjoy. There's a lot of bias already in, in the system of science. And there's, fewer people who will look like you necessarily if you're kind of that underrepresented minority or marginalized community entering a, a scientific field. Um, and so it's hard to progress if you don't see anyone who looks like you higher up, you know. Um, I know it was a lot easier for me as like a white cisgendered woman looking around and I could find mentors um, I, who looked like me. I could see people in higher up positions who looked like me. But I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, and so that can really cause a lot of challenges. And just if you don't see yourself in the field, then it's discouraging. And you can have, you know, a lot of negative experiences that push you out. I'm the first person in my family to go into science and the first person to, to get their PhD. Um, and so it, it didn't, it wasn't a clear path to me because I didn't really know that was an option for me. And, you know, for me, when I had a, uh, someone in power telling me I should that I'm not good at science or I'm not good at something, I kind of, you know, it totally beat me down for a few years. But then I also had this drive of like, well, I'm going to show you wrong. And, you know, people don't have to do that. And that's why they leave. Yeah, for sure. So is this what motivated you to get involved with Ladies of Landsat? I joined Ladies of Landsat after about maybe six months of it being established by my friend Kate Fickus. She had really started it with this mission of supporting and retaining women in remote sensing because, you know, it, eh, remote sensing is a really unique field that is at the interface of all these scientific domains like ecology and forestry and um, hydrology, but as well as computer science and engineering. And so what happens in a lot of these fields is there's very few 
women. There's very, um, when you start looking up the ranks, when you start looking at those who are in charge and making decisions, you know, editorial boards will often be a lot of white males. Um, you know, there's people in higher positions of power often are as well. So the, the design of Ladies of Landsat was really to bring people together, um, to, to provide basically, you know, top-down mentoring, um, kind of in an informal way, but also, you know, peer-to-peer, like Kate, Kate was finishing her PhD when I was just finishing my first year of my PhD, and she provided a lot of support and guidance and advice when I was, you know, going up for comps or, you know, navigating maybe like collaborations or um, anything like that. Um, And so that was kind of the way to create visibility and um, connect women in the field. Um, And then as it's kind of developed, you know, we've kind of seen what are, what are issues in the field and how can we address them? Like things like there's a, there's citation gaps between um, men and women. And so we started this manuscript Monday series to, or I guess I started this manuscript Monday series as a way to provide more visibility and to, uh, to provide highlights of cutting edge research being led by women and other gender minorities in the field. Wow. That's really cool. What else is Ladies of Landsat doing? Recently, this past year, we've developed this editorial board um, for a new section of the remote of remote sensing, the MTPI journal, and it's called Discoveries in Remote Sensing. And it's a right now it's actually led by a team of eight women um, editors, and it, the point of it is to make it a more inclusive um, experience for publishing. And so things like providing, um, you know. English uh, written support, as well as providing resources for how to write a good manuscript or how to write a good cover letter, Um, you know, encouraging submissions from folks who are including their field technicians or doing, you know, participatory collaborative research with um, folks from an area that they're working in. So that's been the design of that. And that's been really to fill that niche of like, publishing is a kind of old boys club for lack of a better term. And so how can we make it more inclusive for this new generation of diverse scientists who are producing exceptional research um, and just, you know, sometimes may just need slightly different support, basically, than we can provide in a normal publishing setting. In some ways, Ladies of Landsat is taking on an informal mentorship role. So why does mentorship matter? Do you have a specific story in your life, in your journey as a scientist of how mentorship really helped you? Yeah. Um, well, maybe the most recent pressing thing, I haven't really shared this much with people in the field, but I'm actually, I'm pregnant. Um, so I'm 20 weeks pregnant. <laughs> um, and so it was really scary to think about having a child in my PhD. You know, I turned to folks like Jessica McCarty, Joanne White, and Megan Halibisky, and they provided amazing support. Megan had her two kids during her PhD. And it's something that changes your life so much and can seem so scary because it you know, really confronts your identity as a scientist because we're taught to put our identities aside to have, you know, objective science. But actually, a lot of these women will say that they've become better scientists because they had kids when they did. And it taught them to really focus and refine and ask new questions in a different way. I think without my mentors to talk about stuff like that with, there's, it would be really hard to, you know, be a person in the field and to feel motivated to stay in the field. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm excited for you. And uh, it's nice to know that in our show, it's uh, it's going to be a big <laughs> reveal party, you know, like I'm pregnant. <laughs> so much for sharing that to us. I know. 
so do you see yourself after you finish pregnancy and being a mom and being a mom and then a scientist, will you be a mentor? Will you take on, will you pay it forward to other women? Totally. Yeah, definitely. Like I, I think about that already a lot, um, you know, in terms of mentoring other, you know, since I started, there's actually now um, more women than men in my lab. <laughs> so it's, there's, you know, it's changed a lot. And it's, it's not just, you know, gender support as well. It's folks who are, you know, navigating challenges that might have been different than mine, but supporting them through them and providing advice and uh, encouragement along the way. Uh, making sure that other people, you know, know that they can stick with science in the same way that I did, um, and being kind of that that person who can cheerlead them along the way and and support them and provide advice from my experiences, but also, you know, learning from their experiences and helping with them. Um, I want to make the field better so that you know, if my child chooses someday to go into the field, they'll feel safe and welcomed and excited to go into it. Um, and like other folks. And so if I treat everyone like that, then I like, I, it pushes me to to mentor and to help. That makes sense. So you're coming to the end of your PhD. Where are you taking your research? I've actually been really focusing in my last chapter about, um, about combining ecological data that represent drivers that would explain why a fire is spreading in the way it did with fire data sets. Um, Because a lot of times when we create fire data sets, burned area data sets, we do that uh, separately from the ecological information. We have how it looks, but we don't necessarily think about um, uh, the other factors that are involved in a fire um, spreading. And what about beyond your PhD? My dream is to become a Canadian Forest Service employee research scientist, because I just find their science so innovative and so personalized to what Canadians need um, in terms of managing their forests, responding to fires. Um, there's just incredible research. I really care about research, but also mentoring and advising and supporting students. And so, you know, I, I will continue to apply for tenure track jobs if there's something that comes up that looks interesting. Um, but definitely staying and potentially going even more in that direction of forest fire monitoring um, in any way that I can. Um, and providing, you know, data that folks want. Like, I feel like that's my job as a scientist. Um, it's so important to work together because I think the next, you know, the future of remote sensing is all about that, is working together to, to meet these global objectives like sustainable development goals and, and other ones. And so when we work in isolation, we really are limiting the amount of innovation that we can do in the field. That's something that's really directed my research and directed my interest in Ladies of Landsat. So that's been really my goal in my career. Thank you so much, Morgan. It's been a pleasure and I'm really happy for you to become a mom (laughs) and a scientist (laughs) altogether. That's a big job. And uh, I'm just happy that I get to meet you and I hope to meet you in person. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someday in one of the conferences say, hi, I'm Stephanie. Do you remember me? Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. This has been a great conversation and I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast. Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. Want to learn more about Morgan Crowley and her research? Connect with her on Twitter at Morgana Crowley or say hi at Ladies of Landsat. If you like the show and want to help us out, please follow us on Spotify. And if you're listening to Apple Podcasts, please rate us and review the show. 
Our podcast is also being promoted by our sponsors, the IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. Show them a little love by liking their socials at IEEE WinGRSS on Facebook and Twitter and IEEE Women in GRSS on LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tumampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Griggs of Kila Media. It is special thanks to Heather McNairn, Sean Kipover, and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tumampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.